I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter together. In Wellamport, we have been in fits and spurts working through the book of Galatians, and we are currently in chapter 3, having last Sunday considered the verses 19 and 20. So you get the next one in the order, which means my wife gets to hear this sermon twice. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to hear from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. Let's listen carefully, for it is the very word of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Having suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain, therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abram beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abram might, become, or might come upon the Gentiles in Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abram and to his seed were the, were the promises made, he does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there been a law given which could give, have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in in Christ Jesus. For as many as Many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. I direct your attention again to the verses 21 and 22, which are our text. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confirmed all all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. May the Lord now add his blessing to that word. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have before us this morning a challenging passage of God's word, not challenging so much technically in terms of our ability to translate what it is that Paul says, but it is challenging interpretively in uh, the Niagara region where we have a ministerial. We have just finished reading uh, the book Five Views on the Law of Moses, or on the Law and the Gospel, rather, Five Views on the Law and the Gospel, and they all wrestle with this particular passage. Each of the different views on how the law is related to the Gospel all wrestle with the questions of Paul's words here, particularly in these verses and in the verses preceding them. It is a challenging question, which maybe for many of us is a tempest in a teapot. We don't really go in for all of that uh, theological discussion. But it was a very practical issue in the days of the Galatian church. It was a very practical issue for the Apostle Paul. And it's a very practical issue, to be honest, for all of us as well. Because as Christians, we, we need to be able to explain or express or at least articulate for ourselves, for our children, our grandchildren what our relationship is with the law of God. What role, what purpose, what value does the law of God, given in the Old Testament now particularly, what value does that law have for a New Testament Christian, for those of us here today? Are we to obey that law? Do we have to obey those words of God given so long ago on Mount Sinai? And it, if we don't, as we sense we shouldn't, is, is, it, is it true that, that, that what we do in this life is irrelevant, that we don't have to think twice about the way that we walk? We also find that problematic, don't we? And, and we find these positions, these poles between we should do something and we don't have to do anything challenging to to square, to to bring into harmony, to release the tension of. And and the Word of God seems at times to be confusing to us on this very point because there are moments where, like in Romans 6 verse 14, the apostle says, you're not under law but under grace. And we like that. We rejoice to hear that. But then we go to Matthew 5.17 and Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them at all, but to fulfill them. And then we begin to get confused. Do we have to keep the law, Jesus, or not? And if we do, why? And if we don't, why not? And how do we then order our lives? How do we allow this word from God to influence, affect, and direct the way that we live. Indeed, that's where this question lands, doesn't it? That's where this text really speaks, because how do we as Christians in a fallen world, as those who are committed to Christ, order, organize, orient our daily living? 
We know that we can't be legalistic. We understand that's not right. And we all know people like that, don't we, who are passionate about rules and myths, rather, the passion of serving Christ. But we also know people that live licentious lives, that live as though it doesn't matter what they do. They eat, drink, and are merry, and all the while believing they're saved because they believe or can spell the name of Jesus. And that's not good either. That's not right either. It's not good for this life, and it's really not good for the next. Jesus' words in Matthew 7 ought to strike all of us when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Do you see how practical a question this has become? Which makes answering the question of what's the role of the law in the life of the Christian of no small significance. But thankfully, we have passages like this one to answer. Now, the passage we have does begin with a question. Paul says, is the law then against the promises of God? His answer is certainly not. But let's for a moment allow the question to resonate in our hearts and mind. Why would Paul ask, why in his pastoral wisdom, does he anticipate his readers asking that about the law's relationship to the promise. He's anticipating that some of them, having heard what he said thus far, will say, but Paul, that means the law is contrary to the promise. And Paul isn't saying that, but we need to understand why he's not saying that. And that goes back to what Paul had just finished saying when he asks the question, what purpose then does the law serve? He asks that in verse 19. And Paul answers that by teaching us that the law was added because of transgressions. And that means that the law was added so that we could learn very clearly that we're sinners. We need to know that. We need to know that we're not righteous in the eyes of God. Not in ourselves. In Christ we are. But in our own efforts, in our own thoughts, in our own abilities, we are not nearly what we think we are in the eyes of the Lord. But that being the case, because the law is constantly condemning us, constantly saying mistake, mistake, no, that's wrong, no, you failed, because the law is constantly telling us where we err, and God in Jesus Christ is constantly telling us we're forgiven, that he loves us, that he values us, that he thinks we're wonderful, that's certainly how so many in the church today present the gospel. It sounds, doesn't it, then, as though the law is working at cross-purposes to the promise. God is saying, I love you. The law is saying, he hates you. That's at least how so often it feels. The law is busy condemning people, while the promise is busy trying to save people. I mean, think of it this way. God was going to save everyone by grace through faith without any reference to their good works. We know that. We know that already in the Old Testament that God's purpose was to save by grace through faith. But then we struggle to understand, even for the Old Testament Christian, what all those do's and don'ts of the Old Testament time period were all about. Basically, we want to know how do we square the stern requirements of all those 613 rules of the Old Testament, which, as Leviticus 18, verse 5 reminds us, if a person does them, he'll live by them. And if you faithfully obey, as God says in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, if you faithfully obey the Lord, you will be blessed. Certainly sounds like, doesn't it? Sounds like if we do good, 
God's going to provide for us blessing. How do we square that with the call to faith in Jesus Christ, which requires at the outset that we repent and acknowledge our hopelessness in order to believe only in Jesus Christ? What is the relationship between the law and the gospel? Is the law at counterpurposes to the promise? Is the law preventing us from achieving the promise? Is the law offering us a different way of salvation? These are the questions Paul is asking in that opening statement of our text. And it's a compelling question because there are many, even in our day, who seem to suggest that there have indeed been two ways of salvation in the history of redemption. That the law was given to the Jews in the Old Testament Because if they obeyed those rules, which they could do is the presumption, if they obeyed those rules, then they would achieve, they would earn, they would accomplish some form of salvation. God sincerely and without any dishonesty gave to his people the law so that they might be saved. Like a a ladder that they led all the way up to heaven and each law was just another rung on that ladder which if they obeyed it would make them achieve ultimately salvation. There are others who take a slightly less hard stance than this, suggesting that God didn't really offer the law as a second way of salvation. God always knew that salvation would come by grace through faith, but he wanted his people to know that they couldn't save themselves, so he pretended to give them a second way of salvation. That is, he told his people, look, if you obey these laws, fine, I'll save you. If you keep these laws perfectly, I'll save you knowing all the while that they couldn't and wanting them to learn that they couldn't either. Either way, in, these, both, in, these, in both of these systems, the law is in some way working contrary to the promises. That is, it offers a second way to be saved that is not by grace through faith. And truth is, sometimes we actually think of the law like this ourselves. I mean, when we read the Old Testament, maybe not the Ten Commandments, but when we read the rest of the Old Testament, and we read about these laws in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy, and Exodus, don't we at times wonder to ourselves what's going on? I mean, these bizarre series of irrelevant and insignificant requirements that serve just to test how committed we are. That's how we so often view the law, isn't it? As a test. Are you willing to prove your worth? Here are the rules you have to follow to prove your worth. If you're really a Christian, then you'll do these things. If you're really a Christian, you'll worship on the Lord's Day. If you're a super Christian, you'll worship twice on the Lord's Day because they prove your worth. But they don't. That's why Paul says, certainly Not. That is a wrong perspective on the law. The law and the promises are not contrary to each other. Paul says you've got it all wrong. You've got the law all wrong. Because the law, says Paul, could never give life. Now notice that. The problem with the law is not its particular rules or commands, the various things it asks us to do or not to do, and it's not that those rules and commands are too tough or too demanding, and it's certainly not that they took the worshipers in the wrong direction, away from Christ rather than towards Him. It was rather that the law, for all of its truth and wisdom, could not give life 
could not give what we need in order to be redeemed. Remember that the law of God reflects his righteousness and holiness. I mean, for simplicity's sake, let's, for simplicity's sake for a moment, let's leave off in the Old Testament all of those ceremonial laws related to the priestly ministry. Let's leave off all of those civil laws that describe how Israel was to live in the promised land. And let's just focus for a minute on the moral aspect of the law. Just even think in terms of the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments are not random or irrelevant terms, ideas that say, well, here's some way to live. They are instead lessons in who God is so that we might have fellowship with Him. Indeed, in this respect, the law of God has an abiding, even an eternal significance. Because when we're living with God on the new heavens and the new earth, we will still live in accordance with the Ten Commandments, in accordance with His will that is revealed in His law. In fact, in redemption, the promise of God through Jeremiah is that He will write those laws upon our hearts. Which means to say that the Bible takes a rather high view of what God's law is, not a dim view at all. It's not something He wants to get rid of, it's something He emblazons upon our very hearts. Indeed, Paul calls the law in Romans 7 verse 12, holy, righteous, and good. And in 1 Timothy 1 verse 8, he writes, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Put simply, what the law of God requires of us isn't the problem. The law of God reflects something of the majesty and wonder of who our God is. Indeed, think about how Jesus summarizes the law with the word love. That is what the law reveals. It reveals that our God is a God of love who would have us live in a loving relationship with Him and each other. Who could possibly take issue with that? Who would suggest we shouldn't live that way? Who would want to say all of those rules that teach us how to love each other are no longer in a force? Who would suggest we shouldn't walk in the way of God's law? Yet knowing what it teaches and doing what it teaches are very different things. You see, here's the problem with our relationship with the law. It's brilliant, beautiful, and beneficial. Living by it leads to blessing. But the law can't make you do any of it. It can tell you what to do. It just can't make you do it. It can say, love your neighbor as yourself, but it can't prevent your pride from looking down on your neighbor. It can't prevent your temper from being lost with your wife. It can't prevent your thoughtlessness, your carelessness, and your selfishness from welling up within you. It cannot stop you from sinning. It can tell you that sin. It can lead you to water but it can't make you drink. Surely we've all experienced this in, in our lives. Teachers, parents, employers, big brothers and sisters, can we make our little brother or sister do the right thing? Can we make them be polite? Can we make them tidy up their toys? No matter how loudly, how meditatively, how sweetly we say it, Sometimes people do not do what they are told to do. They just don't want to. 
to tell someone that they should do this and shouldn't do that may be profoundly true and helpful, but you can't make them do it. And that's the problem with the law. The law cannot give life. If it could, we wouldn't need Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So the law and the promises are not at odds at all. Indeed, the law teaches us with great clarity and insight how to live in a devoted relationship with God and each other. But it can't bring life to dead sinners. It is in this way utterly impotent. And understanding that, we can understand why Paul goes on to say that the Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, it's intriguing that Paul here in verse 22 replaces the word for law with the word for Scripture. He uses them somewhat synonymously, but there is probably good reason to believe that Paul is expanding his perspective. Now, he may be thinking about a passage like Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, where it says, Cursed be anyone who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them. But Paul's use of the broader term, Scripture, broadens what he's saying. He's saying it's not just the Ten Commandments that are in view here. It's not even just the priestly, the ceremonial laws. It's not even just the civil laws, indeed. It is all of God's Word. It is all of God's Word through His prophets and through the Old Testament, through His servant. It is God's revelation to us that we are imprisoned. It imprisons us. That is what Paul means when he says, but the scripture has confined us as under sin. The word confined there has the idea of imprisoned. Indeed, it has the idea of a great net that that fishermen would use in order to capture fish. Now you think of a school of fish swimming in the water and this grand trawler comes along with its big nets and it scoops up those fish And it imprisons them. It prevents them from going where they want to and doing what they want to do. They are captured, captivated, and they cannot escape. In the same way, says Paul, Scripture imprisons everything under sin. Now, notice that he says everything. But the Scriptures can find all, he says, under sin. The word all there does not only refer to people, but to all. It is everything. Which is to say that the curse of sin lies on everything. It lies on all of life. This world is broken. This world is burdened. This world faces or promises such blessing and potential, but in the end delivers such pain and sorrow. And why is this? Why was this done? Well, Paul tells us, not because God is cruel or mean, not because he wants us to suffer in order to pay for our sins in some way. No, this was done so that the promise of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe. By imprisoning us, the Scripture punishes us for sin, for an imprisonment obviously is a form of punishment, It also exposes our failures and increases our guilt, makes us feel bad for what we've done, generally making our lives difficult, and prevents us, therefore, from finding salvation in any other way than in the powerful redeeming work of Christ. 
That is to say, every time we try to do something we think will make us valuable, either in this life or in the next, the law of God comes along and says, nice try, not good enough. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 straight to jail for you. Now, for many people in the church, this is exactly why the law of God is such a problem. It demands obedience across all areas of life, leaving nothing for us but requiring perfect submission. And yet all that ever happens when we devote ourselves to this way of living is the exposure of our sin. It's like having a teacher that gives us an F on every assignment or test. It's like having a boss who criticizes everything you do. Look, eventually you're going to get annoyed at that teacher and you're going to get frustrated with that boss. Indeed, the brilliance of our self-absorption and arrogance is when we feel the pinch of our own failures, we are very quick to find the cause in other people. We always blame the circumstances, the people, the teacher, the boss. If only I had a more winsome teacher, I would have done so much better in school. If only my boss were kinder, then I would be more successful. And maybe there is a truth there, I don't know. But it's certainly not true with respect to the law, even if our world says it is, because our world lays the blame for guilt and shame at the very foot of the church, saying that it's because we're so narrow-minded, it's so bigoted and so misogynistic that people are oppressed. The church has never done anything good in the history of the world, they say. But what if the problem is we're actually imprisoned under the dominion of sin, but don't know it. And what if the kindest thing to do is to stop pretending that humanity is so awesome and amazing, that the whole self-esteem spirit of our modern age is not just wrong, but a deception that keeps us from being freed. What if the best thing we can do is to learn we're imprisoned by nature under sin. Not because that in itself is so great to learn, but because then we can begin to see the enormity of God's grace in Jesus Christ. See, that's what the law is busy doing. We're so busy defending ourselves, we're so turned inward on ourselves, that we can't see the glory of God standing before us. We can't see the wonder of his love. We can't see the amazing grace that he has performed because we're so busy being sinful. The law comes along and it exposes our sin. Now, it does more than that, to be sure. But this is one of the great struggles we have. But what if that struggle is actually good and necessary? Because what if that struggle finally convinces us that we're hopeless and helpless apart from the glory of God in Jesus Christ. You see, then the law is hardly working at cross-purposes with the gospel. Indeed, it's working very diligently to bring us to the gospel, to help us see that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to Jesus Christ. Here's one of the great oxymorons of the Christian life. 
the more miserable we realize we are, the more majestic our Savior becomes. The more joy we experience, the more wonder, the more worship, the more love. Just had this conversation with a member of our congregation whose body is betraying her and whose weakness is becoming a burden to her. And yet it is precisely in these moments that her sense of God's goodness and love towards her deepens and enriches. As she experiences the loss of so much, what she has gained in Jesus Christ becomes all the more precious. Indeed, the more we realize just how majestic our Savior is, the more we discover how enormously and profoundly blessed we are. Now, we like that end bit, the bit about how blessed we are. We just don't like the first bit, the part where we have to put to death our pride, ourselves, acknowledge our misery in ourselves as sinners. But you see, when we deny the first bit, when we refuse to admit we need help, when we think we can go about life, parenting, uh, worship, witnessing, uh, business, when you think that all you got to do is follow the rules and it'll work out. Failing to acknowledge just how much you need Jesus, then you'll never experience the wonder of the blessing. It's only by acknowledging our misery that we see the wonder of our Savior and discover that we have an inheritance far more precious than anything this world will ever know. The more highly we think of ourselves, the more convinced that that we are that we can achieve blessing in this life, only to be constantly frustrated and discouraged and unhappy. Yet when we turn to Jesus, we find ourselves able to rejoice in all his goodness towards us, yes, even in the trials that he chooses to send us. You see, the law in the end is our help. It is not our hindrance. The law is not working at cross-purposes to the promise at all. What it's doing is saying, pay attention, look up, see Jesus and what he's done. It's hard to do that in our daily living. It really is, partly because we just get busy. Our lives are just busy. And you get focused on little things and big things and life and stress and anxiety which is why it's so good, isn't it, to be able to have a day like today, a day of rest, where we sit for a minute, and then at the beginning of our day, we read those 10 words of the law, and if we listen to them carefully, we go, oof. If we listen to them in the light of what the catechism teaches about those 10 words, if you go through the catechism teaching on those 10 words, you go, oof, I didn't do those at all. And we may be in Inclined then to say, well, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to feel that. I don't want to experience that guilt and shame. But if we listen more carefully, we'll find ourselves brought to the foot of the fountain of grace that is Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us. And we will drink and be filled. We will be washed and made clean. We will be blessed and enlivened by the work of the Holy Spirit who will equip and enable us to each day more and more live in the light of God's righteousness as revealed in his law, we will find ourselves truly blessed. You see, wrestling through these questions, we may think, are matters just for theologians. This is a tough passage. We don't really want to work through it. Let's just carry on. 
But when we, care, when we do the tough work, when we do the difficult things, we end up discovering the grace and goodness of our God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing together.